Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. In this podcast, we discuss life as a security leader and challenges and opportunities that accompany the job. Listen to our past episodes at www.netspy.com slash agent of influence or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, we're joined by one of my close friends and mentor, Samir Sharif. Hi, Samir. Hello, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Samir is the CISO at Imperva. He's a transformational leader with over 20 years of development, risk, and IT security program leadership. Prior to joining Imperva, Samir led multiple information security programs at Citigroup, including fraud, IT risk, and security architecture solutions, impacting over 50,000 technology staff globally. So Samir, we're really excited to have you to start, you know, and get to know you a little better. We have a new segment, which is a rapid fire round of questions. Don't think too much. Give us the first answer that comes to mind, and it'll allow our audience to get to know you a little better. You got it. Let me know when you're ready. I'm ready. Let's do it. First question, Apple or Android? Android. You might be the only person I know whose whole family is Android, actually. So I... <laughs> Android all the way through. <laughs> what is the most used app on your phone? Very good question. Actually, I'd never thought of it. But uh, to give you a very quick answer, it'll be probably my Chrome browser. Chrome browser. Okay. Your first job, was it in technology or security? My first job was actually in, uh, in fraud department. Awesome. Awesome. In retail card services. Got it. Got it. If you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? Anywhere in the world, it'd be Japan, hands down. Why? Shock of culture, difference, environment. Um, I mean, the physical environment, obviously. The food, the mountains, the hot springs, the skiing, you name it. It's one one-stop shop for everything you can probably ask for in a, in a very diverse environment. So speaking of food... Next question is food related. Sure. What's your favorite meal, breakfast, lunch, or dinner? Depends where in the world. <laughs> Let's talk about Japan, if you were in Japan. Then breakfast, breakfast for sure. Breakfast for sure. What's your favorite holiday? Uh, my favorite holiday is actually summer break, where I can spend more time with the family. Awesome. What are some of your hobbies when you aren't working on securing Imperva? Pre or post-COVID. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about today. Today, uh, my favorite hobby would probably be going out and playing golf. Awesome. Mine too, actually. So, What was the last thing you read? The last thing I read would be last night, The Economist. <laughs> you know, I think, I think with parents who are diplomats, that's one of my go-to publications that I have at home. In fact, my dad's subscription comes to me at home. Right. What's the favorite part about your job? I would say, honestly, quite simply, herding the cats. I'll use that as an analogy. Okay. Okay. What's the least favorite part of your job? Um, Groundhog Day. <laughs> Understood. So last one of rapid fire round. What's your favorite cybersecurity event or conference? My favorite cybersecurity event uh, or conference, honestly, would have been the one that I just went to recently. That was a teammate, uh, CISO Summit. Anything about the event that you like in particular? It's the most intense, uh, diverse in terms of CISOs in all industry, and more importantly, topics driven and covered by CISOs over multi-day, purely focused on one sole topic around cyber risk and risk management. And remind me if I'm correct that this is purely focused on CISOs only, correct? Right, right. That's correct. Awesome. Well, that was the rapid fire round. We know you a little bit better than we did at the beginning. So thanks for that. Of course. So let's let's dive into to some of the topics that we want to cover today. 
with someone like yourself, I wanted to talk to you more about how to build relationships and particularly networking in the information security industry. Can you maybe start by talking about the true power of relationship building and collaborating across the industry? Right. No, excellent question. Um, honestly, the uh, building relationships and collaboration is paramount for us, us in the cybersecurity or information security field. And honestly, for us to be successful, this is not a space where we can solve the challenges by ourselves. We have to collaborate with our peers. And also, equally importantly, uh, with regulators and also the solution providers that come up with capabilities for us to make a difference in, the, in this uh, climate. And so that's kind of like my opening statement around why it's important, but leading into really how and where you do that is something I think that Bill, we, we have to explore a little bit differently. I've clearly been in the, in the industry long enough starting in development. I mentioned fraud at the beginning, which really helped me open my eyes to begin to engage directly with the consumer side of the world and the business side of the world. And then over the years, being a developer myself and, and seeing the challenges of what day-to-day -day looks like from IT, uh, uh, IT and engineering practices, really kind of gave me a perspective of the importance of looking outside the box when it comes to thinking about how to make actually a difference and engagement with various types of diverse people, well, which is very, very important. Now, one of my other friends who's also a CISO mentioned to me once that as a CISO, he spends more time communicating and marketing and selling internally than other parts of his job. Do you find that to be accurate in your role as well? And how do you determine what your areas of focus need to be? Right. Uh, this goes back to your first question around collaboration and, and working with others. And when you did intro me, thank you for that. Um, you talked about the various programs I've led over the years at City. Even before that, when I was managing technology and working in compliance, I constantly had to sell concepts and ideas to different stakeholders. Even running programs for security meant foundationally, you need to get the budgets, you need to get an agreement, you want everybody's heads to nod to agree with you that you want to make a difference and a change for something that may not, they may not agree with or they may not understand. And that involves a lot of selling, right? So you do have to have a certain amount of sales mentality um, as much as business mentality to actually run security well and make a difference uh, in that space. So I completely agree with your statement that you do spend a lot more time communicating and selling internally because that's what it takes. So personally, when I think about my journey in the cybersecurity space, I often feel like I started too late to focus on building the networks and socializing and really building trusted partnerships with other professionals and colleagues of mine. What type of advice would you give to cybersecurity professionals who maybe want to start actively focusing on building out their network across the industry? Excellent question. Um, it depends on your industry, but if you are, regardless of which industry you may be in, there are things you can do and should do to build your network and also collaborate with others. Primarily, get out there, go to conferences, meet people, not just for the sake of meeting them, but actually building a connection and having a follow-up conversation. And importantly, also, don't do it just from the perspective of, I need to do it to build up my LinkedIn connections and, and, and the relationships, but more that you have to mean it. It has to mean something and you need to approach it with sincerity, not just as a mechanical process where you're just gonna do it because it's, it's the right thing to do. So you have to really get that mindset straight in terms of really looking at this as a 
as something that you want to do, not necessarily purely just because from a selfish perspective, but more to kind of think about really expanding yourself, maybe providing an ability to contribute to help the overall kind of perspective around what are we doing around the, you know, information security, control, security, risk management, et cetera. But you got to mean it. You can't just do it for the sake of executing. I mean, it's not just as simple as I want to do it because that's what everybody does and I want to build the network. It has to mean something and you really have to put an effort, time and material in some cases. Now, having known you for over a decade now, mm-hmm. I consider you both a professional friend as well as a personal friend. And over the years, one thing I've truly admired about you is how seamlessly you have this knack for balancing professional and personal relationships. Can you share with us what your secret is and if you have any tidbits of advice or techniques that you use to kind of harbor that balance between the professional and the personal? Absolutely. And uh, and I, I agree with you. Um, I've, I've known you over the years and I've seen you with, with, the, you know, with the work that you've been doing over the years. And honestly, I, you know, I, I think you're sincere, right? Sincere people genuinely attract other sincere people to work with them as well. And I, as I mentioned earlier, I, I think you have to approach your work. You have to enjoy the job. It's not purely something you're doing just to make money. Although money is great, but primarily you have to enjoy the job. You have to be able to wake up every morning and say, you know what, everybody I'm going to meet with today means something. They're equally important and they all are driving towards the same goal. And the, the amount of sincerity in this, uh, how sincere you are in approaching this conversation, is, it makes a difference. People can see right through it. So building that relationship over time, building trust which takes time, is really what leads to a successful relationship that sometimes can transcend from business relationship to personal level. But the sincerity, the, 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 the no-fluff approach, um, you know, I don't sugarcoat anything. It, I'm super transparent, and what I say is what I mean. And over the years, I've learned very, very well that people actually are, humans in general, are very smart, and they can see right through it. So I don't fake anything I say or do, but I think that's definitely worked to my advantage. Now, one of the things I've picked up over the last seven years is golf. And I know you started picking it up over the pandemic. And that's actually one of the things I leverage to build a better relationship because I find that when you get to spend time on a golf course with someone, you're getting pretty much their undivided attention for a long span of time. And you get to be in person, be present in the moment, share an experience and also get to know the person at the personal level and not just at the professional level. So I've obviously used golf and I know you use golf too to get to know new people and get to really understand people intimately. Are there other activities that you found to be beneficial and are there other techniques that you use to get to know people personally as well? Even before golf, I think uh, I've done a couple of events where involved playing a racket game, squash in particular. Others where it was pool game. Uh, I think gaming is, is, is a great way to build relationship of trust because you are pushing the boundaries and you are in an environment where work is not the primary conversation, but people through interaction and you know any form of physical exercise, including bike riding, really builds trust because they see you in, in a completely different light. And it is an avenue to get away from the stress of the day-to-day Although we always end up at the, at the end having conversation about work or the latest cyber threats and attacks over a drink, which is perfectly fine. 
but it does build relationships. Um, and and it goes without saying, I think this is, this is something that's been done for centuries, right? This is not anything new. And I think we forgot in the work environment, especially nowadays, that we do need to step away and have a very different engagement with, with people we want to build relationships with. And golf certainly in the past few years has been a great avenue and a great way to escape from the COVID and the virus risks that we were experiencing. Now, slightly changing up the topic. Sure. You know, you mentioned earlier that people understand when you're gen- genuine and they want to work with and partner with people who are also very genuine and they attract that. You've been on both the practitioner side. In fact, you were on the practitioner side for a very long time. You have come on to the vendor side where you're now providing services and product to the practitioners. Right. I would love to understand if your perspective has changed on how you looked at vendors when you were a practitioner and then any advice you have for vendors that are trying to build stronger relationships with the practitioners themselves. Excellent question. I think primarily is I think some vendors just don't spend enough time to understand their clients. And in my role today, I definitely, you know, even though I'm, I would say 80, 90% internal CISO, I do spend quite a bit of time building the relationships with customers, primarily with the ones I've known from before, but also building the new ones, you know, the new relationships with new customers that I have not engaged with before. But I think it's important for vendors to understand that at the end of the day, it's a real human being on the other side. Right. Your customers are people. They're driven by certain goals and, 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 and they have, they strive for certain achievements and spending a little bit more time to actually understand that and what that driving force is, whether it's, you know, material risk reduction or just simply checking the box because they need a specific solution in for a certain price. And, you know, majority of the times it's not as simple as that. And they do appreciate it because I was a customer for a long time and I've dealt with plenty of vendors as well. I always appreciated ones that actually took a little bit more time to understand what I'm trying to achieve over the years and be able to comfortably say, you know what, we may not be the right fit for you today, but let's keep the conversation going, right? Let's build that relationship and we'll check back in and we'll help you with your strategies over time. And believe it or not, a year or two down the line, I ended up doing a bigger deal with those um, uh, vendors than I would have otherwise, because the, you know I wasn't seen as just you know, a quick sales contact. It was more of a long-term engagement from a relationship perspective. So I think it's critical that some vendors, albeit I recognize that they may not all have the same bandwidth and resources to do that, but it is important to do that. Well, you've had a career where you've impacted many people, both you know within your organization who maybe worked for you or reported up to you, and also globally, given the size of Citigroup as a whole, right, as a, as a banking organization. I'm curious, do you have any particular highlight within your career that really sticks out to you where you had truly felt a sense of impact that you made on other people? No, absolutely. Um, I mean, running programs is challenging as it is. Running it in various, juggling different cultures, different lines of businesses in a complex, multi-regulated environment, I think is unbelievably difficult. There was one highlight is actually building a capability where I was able to get a consensus across the different lines of businesses to actually embrace and adopt it. And perseverance is the key. As you commented earlier on this conversation, sales, you have to sell, sell, sell. Be willing to take a lot of punches. 
And uh, it's not about the survival of the fittest thing, but it's, it's actually survival from a journey where ultimately you can prove an ROI, you can show value, you can show the return of the effort and the value it brings in to reduce risk. Ultimately, we all work for a business and businesses exist to profit and grow and also make a difference in the industry. So understanding where those, those strategies are aligned in terms of your own goals are, are critical, but you have to be patient to accomplish all that. Now, that kind of brings us to the next question I had for you, which is focused around budgeting. Well, we are currently in the third quarter of the calendar year, and most people I talk to right now seem to be buried in, in the budgeting season, trying to figure out what they need to do next or for the next year. From your broad experience over the years, are there any metrics that you use that you found to be very impactful when it comes to trying to communicate the need for a cybersecurity budget to the C-suite or to the board, and also maybe to communicate ROI more effectively? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's an excellent question. Primarily, I would say before you even build any ROI models or metrics, make friends with your CFO and the CFO teams. At the end of the day, they're the ones who are going to help you keep the lights on and also make sure that you're budgeting and spending appropriately. From a visibility and communicating up around ROI and, and, and business value is really engagement with the leadership. My focus has always been less about just the basic specific data points. So if you're running one program, less about really just getting numbers off of that program to show value or reduction of, um, you know, if it's a vulnerability management, so it's not about really just reducing vulnerabilities, so what? How is that actually making a difference to generate more revenue for the business? How is that you know, adding value to maybe improve the customer communication and re reduce risk for the organization? That's what they really care about and look for. At the end of the day, we are risk leaders. That's all we are. And we're managing risk called information security and cyber threat, et cetera. But we have to be able to have the same kinds of conversation as the IT engineering heads might around actually providing value and also building efficiency over time. So the metrics I've leveraged is a combination of showing risk data, but also resiliency data. It's a combination of what, you know, how my capabilities and programs and the leaders that work for me are delivering to help actually move the needle to enable the business to move faster and, and grow. And that's what really resonates with seniors and the board. And ultimately, you know, you can you end up getting more budgets to build upon that. Speaking of resiliency data, it's often very challenging to quantify resiliency. Can you share maybe some examples of data points that you've leveraged that you saw were useful in that sense? Absolutely. And uh, the data points actually I'll give you examples about is, is essentially what I, was, uh, what I worked on to embed as part of the overall business resiliency data. Information security or cybersecurity is part of that picture. So providing a lens into how that's actually helping, you know, improve the resilience of the business is critical. So I also have continued business responsibility. I have risk management, clearly infrastructure security, product security. All of them play into impacting availability of infrastructure. So having data points, both from operational data outside of my control, but also data in my control related to what I see from risk is in combination what's, what drives visibility around where the business is in terms of having its infrastructure 100% available for critical systems that our customers would be relying on. Number two is data. 
right? Data is, 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 is important and protecting you know, sensitive customer data is very, very important. And as you're hearing me talk, you're probably thinking to yourself, these are risk appetites, right? So in combination, these risk appetites is really what builds strong resiliency. So data risk is important and then you have to manage that effectively. But again, it's not, you know, it's, it's not saying I'm going to protect 100% of all data. It's really about having visibility and clarity on what data is important, what data just cannot be impacted from any type of cyber risk and measuring it to manage that effectively. And lastly is uh, the health of the technology itself. If you have any oversight on product security, then you have to measure health of the solutions, how effectively they're managed from a quality perspective, including security, because ultimately one without the other really doesn't work. You need to kind of have a full visibility end to end on that and measure it from, uh, from resiliency in terms of how effectively it's being managed, patched, you know, remediated, vulnerability-wise, et cetera. So in combination, I mean, I think understanding what the risk appetite and journey is for the business is important and being part of that and really help drive the resiliency for the business. Now, going back to something else you mentioned in your answer at the beginning was be friends with your CFO. Now, when I think about that statement, I think about two different things. One is obviously your CFO controls your budget. So obviously, if you have a good relationship with them, you have better chances of hopefully getting support for what you're pushing. But also, ultimately, any business that you are part of, their goal is to make money, right? Everyone's going where the money is. So from a risk perspective, from my view, I consider the CFO to be the one who's also taking on ownership of risk. And that's why you want to have that additional relationship. That's right. Do you have other thoughts around that or anything you want to add to that thought process about risk being owned by the CFO as well? I think risk is owned across the organization. The CFO has a certain amount of risk that they own. Obviously, the general counsels do. The engineering and the platform leaders do as well. The reason I, meant, I mentioned the financial teams first is because not necessarily the CFO itself, but you know, whoever is assigned to you or whoever you're working with is important because there's a, there are a lot of moving parts to managing spend, both from forecast and planning and execution. There's timing. There's, it goes on and on, right? I think in some ways you can argue CFO has as complex a role in some cases as security professionals do in terms of really just making sure that everything balances out. And understanding how that works, a lot of us don't really understand how that works, but understanding that and spending time to understand how it's actually executed within your organization is important. Because you always, as a security professional, you're always going to face or have a need to bring in something more quickly. In some cases, there's planning that needs to be taken into account that takes you know, multi-months, multi-year, and you may not have all the answers. So you need that flexibility to ramp up certain efforts. Uh, there may be a risk or an issue. And occasionally you may want to just tap into a short-term fund, a one-time spend, for example, that may not be very transparent, may not be readily available, may not be, you may not be aware of it. But having that relationship is more important. So you can tap into those efforts that in some cases will get you over the hump to deal with an emerging risk that may not necessarily be as part of your business as usual budget. So, you know, clearly getting involved more closely and managing that effectively is important. There's also the concept of, you know, third-party resources and FTEs and the capitalization and so on. And I don't think we spend enough time to understand how finance really works. 
in some cases, we struggle to get contracts and, and service agreements in place because of the timing and the lack of planning that's required to bring certain capabilities in quickly. Now, beyond looking at data and metrics, what are some other things you've used to effectively communicate your cybersecurity needs to the executive team? Being at the table and not thinking that cybersecurity, information security is the primary number one thing everybody needs to worry about. It is one of the worries. Uh, just like if you're an athlete, you, all, yes, you do need to worry about your health. So let's think of cyber professionals as the doctors are saying you need to eat healthy and eat well, but there's also performance demand, right? And being at the table uh, as part of a team that can have a good conversation around really what's the objective, what's the strategy, helping influence that strategy is, is important to be successful in, in, in the field that we're in. Awesome. Well, Samir, before we let you go, we want to know a little bit more about things you like to do outside of work and outside of security and tech. Sure. So since you're such an avid golfer, can you share with us maybe one of your most exciting golfing experiences and along with maybe your favorite golf course that you've played in and why that is your favorite? I will maybe switch gears a little bit. I do love golf, but if there's one thing I actually enjoy as equally as much as I do golf is actually learning languages. I know this is going to sound crazy. I truly am fascinated by identities, cultural identities. And because I've lived in so many different countries throughout my life, I kind of started to dabble into multiple languages. So I'm terrible at all of them with the exception of English, although I still think I'm struggling in English occasionally. But languages have been the kind of a door into perspectives of people and how people think in different environments and different worlds. So I, I, I've always enjoyed doing that. I'm still doing it. But, you know, to answer your golf question, honestly, I think the best place I've ever played at was probably in, in St. Andrews in Scotland about a month ago. It's just the, the climate, the altitude, the cold breeze. It really works well. So no surprise they, they started playing golf out there. I think there was not much else to do, but it kind of gave me a perspective of, of clarity around why there instead of anywhere else on the planet where they started to play golf but it just works well with the environment. So culture and environment is important. And kind of reemphasizes what I just said about understanding ethnic identities and cultural identities. I think also translates into what kind of sports they play and why. Oh, absolutely. Well, you're not off the hook yet because okay. I know that your son has also become an avid golfer and he has had many accomplishments. Do you want to share with our audience one of his most recent accomplishments? And I will say, it, uh, I, sure, I'll be happy to, to share, but I will say that I think COVID has turned the United States upside down when it comes to golf, to the point where I think most people can't even, well, I should say they're struggling even to get into private club memberships because there's waiting lists for a year or so in some cases. And my son is one of those who just went through that journey during lockdown because there was nothing else to do and fell in love with it. And I really do believe there are a lot of other kids like him who are also have picked up the sport and I see it in the clubhouse. There are just so many kids nowadays, but it, it, we're lucky that he enjoys it and we're glad that he's happy to be outside playing all day long and hopefully he'll keep up with it. That's awesome. Well, thank you, Samir. Of course. This has been a pleasure and we really appreciate your time and your insight on all of these topics. And hopefully I get to see you on the golf course really soon. Look forward to it. And we'll thank you for uh, having me on the show and uh, appreciate it. And as always, value your friendship. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you want to join us as a guest on the podcast or have a recommended guest, please email us at podcast at netspy.com. Until next time.